You are listening to The Desk Set, a bookish podcast for reading broadly. We are your hosts, Emily Calkins and Britta Barrett. Our first episode of the season explores books about crimes. In this episode, we interview two authors. At the center of their books are violent crimes, including rape and murder. While we've intentionally kept the details of these crimes to a minimum, there may still be moments that are difficult to hear. We're sharing this information up front so that you can make the best decision for yourself about when and where to listen. Also of note, one of the authors we interview, Alexandria Marzano-Lesnovich, goes by Alex, identifies as genderqueer, and uses they-them pronouns. If the concept of non-binary gender identity, preferred pronouns, or the use of the singular they is new to you, we'll include some resources in our show notes so that you can learn more about that. Okay, on to the episode. First, we sit down with Ken Armstrong, author of A False Report, A True Story of Rape in America. Then we chat with Alex Marzano-Lesnovich about their book, The Fact of a Body. Finally, we recommend some of our favorite books about crime, and I've chosen a few lighter picks in case the rest of the episode has really got you down. In 2009, a young woman living in Linwood, Washington called the police to report a crime. A masked man had broken into her apartment in the early morning hours and raped her. As the police began to investigate, they noticed some inconsistencies in her story, and eventually, in tears, the young woman recanted and agreed to sign a statement that she'd made the whole thing up. Nearly two years later, the Linwood police called her back out of the blue. A serial rapist had been arrested in Colorado. Among the things the police had found in his apartment, a digital camera, and on the memory card of that camera was a picture of this young woman, bound and blindfolded, with her learner's permit on her chest. There's absolutely no doubt that her original report was true. So how does something like this happen? That's the question that journalists Ken Armstrong and T. Christian Miller explore in their incredible true crime investigation of false report. Ken joined us to talk about the book. My name is Ken Armstrong. Um, I live in Seattle, and I am a co-author of A False Report. Uh, The other author is T. Christian Miller. Yeah, and how did you guys get together to write this book? It was not by design. Um, We actually started working on the story independently of each other. Um, T was at one news organization, I was at another. Uh, competing news organizations and unbeknownst to each other we were working on the same story for months Um, T was working on the story in Colorado while I was working on the story in Washington Um, once we finally tripped across one another we had a decision to make whether to compete or to collaborate and we decided to work together and so then we wound up writing a story Um, online for both of our news organizations. And then after that, we continued our reporting and went ahead and wrote the book together. And that parallels so much of how the story itself unfolds. Can you tell us a little bit about where it takes place? Sure, it it takes place um, in Linwood, Washington, at least at the start. Um, The story is is about a, a man who was a serial rapist and he committed his attacks in one jurisdiction and then another because he was aware that law enforcement agencies often struggle to work together, that they often don't share information efficiently or effectively. So he committed his attacks in Linwood and then Kirkland in Washington State. And then he later moved to Colorado where he committed uh, rapes or attempted rapes in four different suburbs of of Denver. One of the things that struck me uh, about the book is sort of the combination of coincidence and incredibly hard work that led to him 
being apprehended in the end. The fact that the lead detective in Colorado is married to a detective from another jurisdiction, and it just sort of comes up in their evening conversation with with each other that there's a similar case. And then, on the other hand, this incredible work of reviewing all of the crime scenes to look at the vehicles, and you know, someone noticing this white truck is has been spotted at multiple crime scenes. Do you think? What do you think the sort of implications are for that for police work in general? You mentioned you know, the conversation that uh, one of the detectives, Stacy Galbraith, had with her husband, and I think about that often. Right? She comes home after uh, the day that the, the, this rape happened, and she began investigating it, and she tells her husband about what she learned that day, and he just so happens to work at another police department where they had a case just like it. So because of that, that happenstance, you know, that conversation that they happen to have together, she's immediately alerted to the possibility that the same rapist has struck in a different um, jurisdiction uh, shortly before. You know, the odds of that conversation happening, there's no way to calculate it, but it has to be long. Yeah. And from there, you know, Stacey Galbraith capitalizes on, on her good fortune about learning that when she did. And she teams up with the detective in Westminster. And from there, they do everything that Mark O'Leary, the rapist, never anticipated. They join up, they share resources, they pool information, they build a team. And because of that, because of that teamwork, they're able to close in on him. That same teamwork did not take place in Washington, Mm -hmm. right? They missed that opportunity, even though they were made aware of the similarities between the attacks in Linwood and Kirkland. They weren't able to tie the two together, and it was really a missed opportunity to, to broaden their investigation here when they could have. So you mentioned that this started out as a piece that was published online and as an episode of This American Life. Why did you decide to go forward and, and do the whole book as well? Initially, T and I didn't want to. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's it's such a grim subject. And having been with it as long as we had, with both the online story and with the This American Life episode, you know, This American Life devoted the entire hour to this story. So it was really a, a challenge, and it was a pretty formidable story. Uh, we were both ready to move on, but after that initial impulse and after more time passed, we realized that there was more to the story that we wanted to tell, um, that there was more context, more history, and we realized that we would regret it in years to come mm-hmm. if we didn't take advantage of that. You know, like one of the sections in the book that I, um, I found most rewarding in terms of doing the research was the history of sexual assault mm-hmm. and, and how what happened with Marie and Linwood is not some outlier. You know, it really traces to how historically in the United States we have treated women with distrust, not just in terms of how cases are investigated, but in terms of how they're tried right down to how juries have been instructed over the centuries. Juries have been dis- instructed to not trust women when they claim that they've been raped. And being able to, to write that history and, and to take it from the 1600s in Great Britain up to the present day was something that we really couldn't do in the online piece. 
But that's what books allow you to do. Mm -hmm. They allow you to go deep with context and history and to show people that as outrageous as Marie's case is, it's not alone. Her case is not unique. Mm -hmm. And the details of the crime in the book are nothing short of harrowing. It doesn't get easier. Someone who's reading, or in our case, I think we're both listening to the audiobook, um, this pattern emerge over and over again. But it's so also important to figuring out who this person is and what sort of their modus operandi is. How did you decide how much to share? It was difficult. I think that's one of the things that we wrestled with most is how much detail is enough? How much detail is too much? You know, you have danger on both sides. If you have too much detail, you, you go into an area that is graphic and salacious. And we didn't want to do that. But if you don't have sufficient detail, you're sanitizing what happened and you're not letting readers know the horror of what each of these individuals experienced. So we had a lot of cold readers um, and all but one were women. And it was important for us to get as much feedback as possible so that we could learn from other people. Did they feel like the amount of detail was sufficient? Um, it was one of those cases where, as I mentioned, T and I didn't set out to work together on this. You know, the fact that you had two male authors was not by design. That's something that just happened. And because of that, we were always concerned that we might have blind spots or there might be things where we were being insensitive, you know, without being aware of it. So we really tried hard to make sure that we had as many women reading the book as possible. And we were fortunate that publisher at Crown uh, Molly Stern and both of our editors were women, um, uh, Rachel and, and Emma. So that was incredibly helpful to us. But we struggled with that. We struggled with the amount of detail um, about the crimes. We also struggled with the amount of detail about each of the victims because most of them did not want to be identified. And you have the danger of how much detail threatens to identify them. But if you don't have enough detail, they become cardboard cutouts and you don't want that either. So there, there were a number of things in the book where we were trying to find middle ground. Well, I think that really shows um, my hesitation reading a lot of true crime books is the lens with which they're written is often sort of objectifying or sort of lingering on the gory details. And personally, I'm not that interested in reading that, but I didn't come away with that feeling from here. So. Thank you for taking on a difficult task. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that because that was a great risk. He attacked six women and we account for each of those attacks during the book. If we had gone into great detail with each one, I, I think it would have been unbearable at, for, for the reader. But at the same time, if you skip over any of them, I, I think that's a disservice of a different kind. I wonder if any of the people involved in the case, either detectives or the crime scene analysts or any of the victims have read the book and if you've heard from them? Um, we certainly have from you know detectives um, in the book because we went over it with them at great length. And I went over the book at great length with Marie, um, the 18-year-old the um, victim um, in Linwood. And 
she she told me that she didn't have it in her right now to read the book. She didn't want to revisit it in that detail, but I went through it whenever I had any questions about, does this seem appropriate? Does this level of detail seem appropriate? And she and I talked on the phone often. Um, we also met in person when we were working on the radio show mm -hmm. with This American Life. And she was incredibly helpful in letting us know what her feelings were and what she felt was appropriate. And a lot of times, I think that we, there's a danger of making assumptions about what people will feel. And I'll give you an example. When we did the online piece, we had one audio element in it, and it was a one minute clip of audio of Marie talking about what happened that morning, describing being attacked. And a lot of people involved in the production end thought that she would be opposed to us using that audio. And I called her and I played the audio for her and I asked her, what are your thoughts on us using this? And her reaction was the opposite of what a lot of people thought. She not only was okay with us using it, she wanted us to use it. She wanted people to hear her voice. She wanted people to hear her describing what happened so that they could appreciate what happened and that they could get that this was her speaking and this was what was not believed. Um, so a lot of times, you know, our, our first impulse was to ask people themselves um, what their views were on whether we used something or didn't use something. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if that's true also of the um, detectives in Linwood and Kirkland who that's sort of where the case fell apart. And I think what is sort of remarkable to me about the book is despite the fact that they made huge mistakes, uh, it's really quite, um, I don't want to say like compassionate exactly, but it really allows them to have a voice as well about what was in going through their heads and sort of the decision-making process and then their feelings afterward. And I, I thought that was, it feels like a very well-rounded picture of of the events. Yeah, I give the police in Linwood a great deal of credit for talking to us as openly and candidly as they did. Um, I do a lot of writing about criminal justice and in my experience a lot of times when police make mistakes they don't talk about it. Um, you know, they adopt a bunker mentality and they won't even acknowledge the error much less apologize for it. The opposite held true here. Um, you know, the Linwood police owned the error. They talked about how they made the mistakes they did, and they talked about what they're doing differently now mm -hmm. to prevent the, the past from repeating itself. And I think when you hear the detective's voice in the radio show, and when you read his words in the book, you get the sense that his remorse is genuine. Mm -hmm. It is. Um, you know, there, there's one passage where I asked him a question about whether he thinks of Marie often, and the question just hit him, you know, like a sledgehammer. And about a half minute pause, about a half minute passed before he was able to talk. And then he left the room, composed himself, and came back and answered the question. And that wasn't acting, you know, that was genuine. And it's one of the things that T and I were when we look back on the book, one of the things that strikes us is how many people talk to us. You know, Marie spoke with us and 
I, I give her so much credit for being willing to do that because she wanted people to learn from what happened in her case. The two foster mothers who didn't believe Marie and made a terrible mistake, which they both regret, they talked to us also so that people could learn from their mistakes. Mm -hmm. The police who got it wrong spoke with us. Mark O'Leary spoke with us. Um, you know, you hear a lot of voices in the book that you're not accustomed to hearing, at least not in the same story. You might hear them individually in other stories, but to hear everybody talking about what they did in this case is pretty unusual. I'm interested in the fact that Mark O'Leary, who's the who's the rapist, spoke to you as well and how you decided, sort of similar to thinking about the the descriptions of the crimes, how much voice do you give someone like that and how do you balance that? When we wrote the online story, that the story was about 12,000 words and we didn't quote him and we didn't use him in the story, it just didn't feel like when you had only 12,000 words that we wanted to go down that path. But with the book, we felt like there was more room to do that. So we do have a number of chapters in the book where we draw on our interview with him and we draw on an FBI agent's interview with him. Uh, an FBI agent conducted a four hour interview with him and we had that tape. And we also had what he said in court. Um, we got a transcription of what he said when he was sentenced. So we had, you know, seven to eight hours worth of material um, with him talking about what he did. And we felt like it was important to include that in the book, not to excuse, not even necessarily to explain, but to describe. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's the, our impulse was the same as the FBI's. If you have an opportunity to talk with someone um, and gather some information about why they think they did what they did, that's valuable. And talking to Mark O'Leary was also valuable because he went into detail about the steps he took to avoid being caught. Mm -hmm. And I think the more you understand those steps, the greater the chance of catching the next person, who the next Mark O'Leary. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also you know one of the reasons that he said he spoke with the FBI was that he was willing to help. Mm -hmm. You know, um, whether you believe that or not, it, it is valuable to hear him talking about how he had studied rape investigations and the steps he took to avoid, mm -hmm. you know, capture. Another thing that struck me was that um, Marie's story is still on websites trying to say that women lie about rape and uses an example of this, that it hasn't sort of been updated or corrected that um, to this day there are still places that are sort of citing her as an example of this problem of false reporting. Could you speak a little bit to what we know from data about how often false reporting happens? Yeah, the, the, the truth is we don't know how often it happens. And how could we know, right? And in the grand universe, because you know, some of the estimates are that there are as many as 150,000 sexual assaults each year in the United States. Anyone claiming to know with precise detail how many of those allegations are false or true, they're fooling themselves. But the best research, the, the, the best estimates that we've seen indicate that it's in the neighborhood of 2 to 8%. Um, you'll find 
one study claimed it was 90% or false, but that was based upon 18 cases and the methodology was dubious at best. That's a charitable description. Um, you know, one of the things that we tried to make clear in the book was no matter whether it occurs, whether false reports occur frequently or rarely, and it's almost certainly the latter, rarely, the, the best approach is to table your assumptions and to treat each case on its own merits, investigate thoroughly, digit, I mean, diligently with an open mind and let the evidence speak. You know, evidence trumps assumptions. And I think that it's a mistake sometimes to go into any um, report of a crime with a closed mind, with a, with a feeling that, well, usually this is the case or usually that's the case. I think that's when investigators get in trouble. And technology also played a role in uncovering this case. Could you speak to sort of the strengths and limitations of things like rape kits? I didn't know the history of rape kits before we started working on this. And I knew that, you know, in the present day, you know, one of the great tragedies in police work right now, and I don't think that's overstating it, is all of the rape kits that have gone untested. We're seeing that in city after city where they're discovering rape kits that are sitting on shelves that were never tested because of a lack of funding, because of a lack of commitment, whatever the reason might be. Um, one of the things that I found most interesting was that rape kits originated in the 1970s in Chicago, and it was the work of uh, Marty Goddard. Largely, she was a victim advocate in Chicago, and she was working with a crime lab analyst in Chicago, um, Louis Vitulo. And they came up with a kit that would help preserve evidence in cases of sexual assault, but they didn't have the funding to actually make the kits into something that they could assemble the parts and have it where you could basically have it almost like an assembly line, right? Where you could produce these in mass and the funding came from the Playboy Foundation. Um, you know, Hugh Hefner and his foundation provided $10,000 and then a lot of volunteers with the Playboy Foundation, they were mostly uh, senior citizens, came and they put the initial uh, kits together in the offices at the Playboy Foundation. They, they set up tables and chairs, they had coffee and, and you know, um, refreshments. And that was their initial assembly line. And, you know, Marty Goddard said she put up with a lot of grief from taking money from Playboy, but it wasn't like she had a lot of options. Um, foundations at the time were loath to fund this and Playboy was willing to. So I, I, I entirely understand how she felt like what was important was to get this started. And if people had problems with where the money was coming from, well, then they could put up their own money. But in the interim, she wanted to make sure these kits were available. That's a fascinating story. It's unlikely. You yeah. know, I, I was stunned when I saw that. I, 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 you know, again, it's one of those things where we all have assumptions that we make. Yeah. And, you know, we, we can be surprised. So some of your other writing looks at the intersection of football culture and violence, um, sometimes against women. Could you tell us a little bit about Scoreboard? Sure. Um, 
Yeah, the, it was a book that I published, that I wrote with Nick Perry um, back in 2010. And it was about the last University of Washington football team to go to the Rose Bowl, at least the last at that time. Obviously, they just returned. Um, but it was about the 2000 season at UW. And what we did is we looked at players on that team who were getting in trouble off the field and how the community was complicit in not holding them to account. And that went from everyone from the prosecuting attorney's office to some police departments, to the media, to the university, to the athletic department, to coaches. Um, and you know, one of the players that we, we focused on in the book was Jeremy Stevens. And he was accused of sexual assault while he was a football player at the UW. He was accused um, of sexual assault with a, a freshman at the university. And we went into great detail about what the evidence was in that case and, and how prosecutors um, wound up deciding not to charge him despite that evidence. And the lead detective in that case, Marianne Parker, remained um, so disappointed that it was handled that way. She felt like the evidence was compelling and, and that the evidence should have gone to a jury so that a jury could have decided you know, whether or not he was guilty. But that never happened because the prosecuting attorney's office decided you know, not to bring charges. Um, but it was, you know, in that book, we go into the difficulties that the young woman in that case had in bringing it forward and what the repercussions were in her own life. And one of the things that sticks with, with me is she wound up filing a lawsuit against the university for not holding Jeremy Stevens accountable for what she accused him of doing. And the university at one point filed a motion demanding that she be named in full in the pleadings, saying that it was a matter of transparency, that the public was entitled to know her full name. Well, people filing under initials, pseudonyms Jane Doe, is done rather frequently, you know, in these kinds of cases. And the court system knows the full name. It's all, you know, it's not like the attorneys don't know and that the system doesn't know, but just in the pleadings, it's not immediately available. And what was so striking to me was the hypocrisy there because we had done a lot of reporting on sealed court files and a number of them involved the University of Washington where the university had on its motion gotten lawsuits or at least one lawsuit in particular because it was around the same time sealed where it was accused of medical malpractice. It came out of the medical school. So here the university was arguing for privacy when it was accused in this one matter and it wanted her to be named in the other. Um, but the, you know, the, the book really went into detail about how athletics distorts our moral compass, how it, it, it just tends to skew our moral compass and how a, a lot of people were hurt that year because people wanted to make sure that the best players were able to take the field. And are there other books by journalists who you think really tackle um, justice or police reform or any of these difficult topics well that you would suggest for our listeners? You know, when I was going through the research for this book, 
what was most telling to me wasn't the books written by journalists. It was the research in centuries gone by written by legal scholars or legal analysts. For me, being able to read what Sir Matthew Hale wrote in the 1600s or what you know, John Henry Wigmore wrote in the 1930s and 1940s was invaluable because a lot of times when you read legal scholarship from centuries gone by, you feel that there's a great distance between what they were writing then and where we're at now. I did not feel that way when I was writing about sexual assault and how it has been handled in the courts. I felt like there was very little distance and that's so much of the problem is that the way sexual assault is investigated, the way that it is tried, we have not made the progress that we should have, at least not as quickly as we should have. And we still have a long ways to go. I mean, Marie was not only disbelieved, she was charged criminally with filing a false police report. Um, she's not alone. The same thing has happened in recent years in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania, and New York. Um, and I'm sure there have been other instances. We could talk about a, a woman in California who was kidnapped and, and sexually assaulted, and she wasn't believed until video surfaced, you know, showing that she'd been telling the truth all along. Um, it's just deeply disturbing that these kinds of things, that these kinds of cases are happening in different places across the country. In general, what are you reading now? We always ask. <laughs> Uh, right now, I'm reading A Gentleman in Moscow, Okay, and I love it. It is, the writing is just gorgeous. Um, have you read it? I haven't read it, but it's been in our most checked out books, like, since it came out, for going on three years now. That's why I, I, I gave it to myself as a Christmas present. Mm -hmm. You know how it is, you, you, you see it, you buy it, and I handed it to my wife, and I said, um, <laughs> this was so nice of you to give this to me for Christmas. Because um, I wanted to end last year on a good book and start the new year with a good book, mm -hmm. and it's wonderful. And I just had heard from so many people, you have to read this book. And once you've heard that for you know, the eighth time, <laughs> you start to listen, yeah. um, and it's it's terrific. And if anyone wants to read more of your work, where can we find you on the internet? Um, I have a, an author website. It's uh, bykenarmstrong.com, um, and you know the the book, A False Report, is available at all the the usual bookstores, and the story is also going to be on Netflix this year. So it's an unusual story because we wrote an online story. We did a one hour radio episode. It's now out in a book. And this year it's gonna be an eight part dramatized series on Netflix. I'm gonna go home and add that to my queue. Yeah, totally. <laughs> thanks so much for being with us. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. The Fact of a Body by Alex Marzano Lesnovich is a book that combines true crime murder mystery with family memoir and legal theory. Both of Alex's parents were lawyers, and they grew up with the law the same way some people might grow up with religion. From an early age, they were staunchly anti-death penalty, and set themselves on the path to fight the death penalty as their calling and vocation. But when Alex took a summer job at a law firm in Louisiana, their faith in the law was tested. 
When Alex watches a tape of the convicted murderer and pedophile Ricky Langley speak about his crimes, Alex is surprised and overwhelmed by the feeling of wanting him to die. The reaction propelled Alex to dig deeper into the case, and though vastly different circumstances, there's something about the story that is unsettling and familiar. The author brings to life the facts of the case and the lives of those involved in a narrative reconstructed through court documents, transcripts, newspaper articles, and other primary sources. In doing so, Alex takes the reader on a journey that reveals the humanity of someone capable of committing horrible crimes and raises questions about the nature of truth, forgiveness and justice, and demonstrates what our legal system has in common with storytelling. My name is Alexandria Marcena Lesnovich. I go by Alex, and I wrote a book called The Fact of a Body, A Murder in a Memoir. And for someone who hasn't read the book yet, what is it about? It is half family memoir and half kind of a reinvestigation or recreation of um, a murder committed by a man named Ricky Langley of a little boy named Jeremy Guillory. Uh, in the book, I, I basically reinvestigate his life. I drew on some 30,000 pages of court records to write the book. And the two brains, um, my own life and Ricky Langley's life, weave back and forth and ultimately collide in ways that become clear as the book progresses. And is there a word that fits best for you as an author to describe a sort of genre blending? It reads to me like literary nonfiction, but I'm curious if you call it something. I've heard it called many things. <laughs> um, I mostly call it hybrid, but that's not really a word that conveys anything. I, I guess I think it's a it's a bit of a nonfiction thriller. That's more than one word. But in a way, it's a nonfiction thriller about empathy. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's about how we make stories out of the past. Can you tell us a little bit about your path to becoming a lawyer and then a writer? Sure. So I uh, I know the moment I learned about the death penalty, which I have since realized is not a formative memory for most American school children, but there you have it. Um, and from that moment on, I knew I wanted to fight it. And so I went to law school at Harvard to do that. Um, and yet pretty much the first thing that happened was uh, that I was, when I took, a, I took a job my first summer helping to defend men accused of murder, hoping to begin this when I envisioned as a career fighting the death penalty. Um, and the very first thing that happened there was that I was shown the confession videotape of a man named Ricky Langley, in which he described uh, not only murdering a little boy named Jeremy Guillory, but also the pleasure he took in molesting children because Ricky Langley is a pedophile. And uh, I was 25 years old when I watched that tape. And despite everything I believed, despite what I intended to spend my life doing, um, as I watched that videotape, suddenly I wanted Ricky Langley to die. And it was because as I watched that tape, though I was 25, uh, suddenly I was a child again. I mean, I could feel my grandfather's hands on me. So this kind of set up a collision in me, which was uh, basically, you know, kind of is who we are determined by the past or is who we are determined by what we believe. Um, so I, I didn't ultimately become a lawyer. And the reason was that uh, you know, I never felt right becoming a lawyer when the minute a case felt personal to me, I had that emotional response. My feelings changed because every case is personal to somebody. And I realized that what I was actually interested in a lot was the collision of stories. Um, I think we sometimes still think about the law as like a truth finding process, even though thankfully critiques of the narratives that emerged from trials have become more prominent over the last 10 years. Um, 
but we still sometimes think of it as a truth finding process and it's just not it's a truth making process it makes a story and we call that story truth so i i have always been interested in stories i always wanted to be a writer always always um i just didn't think that was a thing you could grow up and be i thought that was like wanting to grow up and be a unicorn <laughs> um, and so i went back to school not for nonfiction um, initially. I actually went back to school for fiction after finishing my law degree. Um, not really because I thought I was going to become a writer, but more because I was going to go do um, a PhD in jurisprudence and work on some questions in the death penalty that I felt very passionately about, even though I didn't want to be in the courtroom. What I wanted to do was kind of academic work, thinking about the way that stories are made in the court system. Um and from there, one thing led to another. I kept writing, I kept writing, and slowly, uh, I still write a lot of fiction, but slowly this book emerged, um, as well as other projects that I'm working on now. And something you mentioned reminded me of this moment in the book where I believe they're they're going through the voir dire process of trying to select the jury and how impossible it was sometimes in this area to find someone who wasn't affected by violent crime. Um, I'm curious what your perspective is on that process and how it maybe takes out people from the room who do have firsthand experience. If you think there's, there's value having those voices in a trial. Uh, that is a great question. First of all, I love that you're asking me about Wadir. I'm obsessed with Wadir. <laughs> uh, like many people, I, I really do believe that a lot of a trial is determined in the Wadir process before the case even begins. And, um, you know, I had 2000 pages on Wadir in this case. And uh, at one point I wrote a version of the book where the entire narrative stopped for 20 pages. So I could like geek out on Boidier um, and then realized of course that I couldn't subject to the reader, subject the reader to that. So now it's about a page and a half. Um, but I do think, you know, you're highlighting a very important concern. Um, death penalty trials are the only ones that undergo a process where the jurors undergo a process we call death qualification, where they have to answer that yes, if the verdict were guilt were to be guilty, um, that they would conceivably be comfortable imposing the death sentence. So in a way, when jurors go through that process during voir dire, there's reason to believe that they're primed to already think about executing the defendant. And they're primed to already think about guilt. Um, evidence about whether this affects outcome is conflicted and unclear, but it also hasn't been studied very much, um, which I think is really concerning um, that we're kind of getting rid of a vast percentage of the population um, that might be less inclined to convict. There's some evidence that people who support the death penalty are, are more likely to convict a defendant, period, across the board. Um, so yeah, I think that's a big concern and uh, something I wanted to sort of subtly highlight in the book. I've only had the pleasure of jury duty once, and um, unfortunately, we were released right after lunch. We got to watch the video about uh, unconscious bias, and I couldn't help but like think that that was such a quixotic gesture, like maybe five minutes of watching that could undo all of the implicit bias that one carries with them in a life, but was also thinking about like, hmm, what would happen if the person who is on trial has committed a crime that has affected my life, would I not be able to like share how I feel about that? I think your book really beautifully illustrates the compassion that maybe 
one imagines wouldn't be there for someone who's experienced that. Thank you. Um, yeah, I was really interested in, in highlighting that. And I will say, I've always wanted to serve on a jury. I've been called three times the minute they ask me what I did in law school and I say, we're fun juries. <laughs> I am promptly excused, unfortunately. Um, but the, you know, I think you're highlighting something that we know to be true about the way that human beings make decisions and that we still have a court system that pretends that it's not true. So we know that people make decisions in large part out of their own experience. Um, we know that decisions are often made out of emotion and emotion is often set by our own experience and what we've been exposed to. And yet we still have a court system that pretends to a large extent that that's not the case. For example, the very concept of a jury is still taught in most law schools using the metaphor of the black box, meaning a jury as a black box into which information comes in and a verdict comes out and we dare not look at the box. Um, That to me seems outrageous, as well as a denial of, again, what we know to be true. So one of the things that, one of the many things that drew me to writing about this case was that there were three trials. And in the first trial, with the facts of the case unchanged, the first trial resulted in a really quick death sentence. And the second trial resulted in life. And you could say sort of, what was the difference? And yeah, there were differences in what evidence was admitted, but not huge differences. I really believe from the records um, that the biggest difference was who was on the jury and what they'd been through themselves. Um, As comes up in the book, the jury foreman in the second case felt a deeply personal tie to Ricky Langley based on his own life experience. And that really impacted the outcome of the case. So much of true crime as a genre sort of reinforces ideas that um, a rapist might be a sort of like mustache twirling villain jumping out of the shadows and the bushes instead of a person who is in your family or your date for the party. And I feel like your book really goes into undoing that caricature of monstrousness. And I'm curious what you think the value is of exploring people who are capable of committing heinous crimes in this way. Well, one is that um, certainly when it comes to sex offender registries, for example, um, we know that the majority of sex crimes, certainly against children, are committed by um, people know, known to the, um, to the victim, family members, neighbors, etc. Um, and yet the biggest sort of weapon we have to fight this is the sex offender registry, which we know that people don't really report family members to. So there's this big mismatch where the idea you're talking about that often prevails in the popular imagination, um, that the people who commit these crimes are like the unknown stranger come to town. Um, that idea actually undercuts our ability to deal with the real problem socially. Um, I'll say as a, as a writer, for me writing this book, though, that was really uncomfortable for me. Um, I remember the first time someone said to me, oh, you're writing a book about two crimes. And what they meant was not just Ricky Langley's crimes, his murder of Jeremy Guillory, but my grandfather's against me. And um, because my grandfather's a pedophile who abused me, and that's you know part of the memoir thread of the book. Um, and I remember my shock and my shock at realizing, wait, I trained as a lawyer, and I still haven't thought about that in terms of crime. So strong is our popular imagination 
that says, no, no, when it happens in a family, it's private. And when it happens by a stranger, it's a crime. So I was interested in kind of evoking that aspect in the book, evoking that that struggle. And how do you think about people that you're close to? How do you think about people who are members of your family or members of your intimate circles? Um, but I was also thinking thinking about it in terms of, oh, something really uncomfortable happened when I had all these records, when I had these 30,000 pages of court records that I was writing from, which is that Ricky Langley started to become a person to me, a person who I felt real empathy for. Um, that moment when I realized that he was becoming that was really the moment that led me to understand that I was going to have to write this book. Um, because my first reaction to him, as I said, was that he should die. And then he started to become a real person because I had all his therapy notes from when he was a teenager. I had the forums that he filled out to try to get help and he, he hadn't gotten help. And, you know, the system had kind of failed him, I deeply believe. And so how was I to think about him? How was I to think about the problem of empathy when you don't want to erase what somebody did, but you have to try to understand who they are, but what they did is still horrible, but you have to understand who they are, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How was recording the audiobook? Um, recording the audiobook was a fantastic way to say goodbye to a project that I had spent, you know, many years working on, seven years writing, 10 years in total. Um, and so the process of finishing it, as you can imagine, was almost difficult. It was difficult to let go of it. Um, so recording the audiobook, reading it start to finish that way, um, and watch, watching the emotions play out on the faces of the sound engineer and the producer um, was kind of a remarkable experience. Are there other books about crime or law that you think do an incredible service to Ooh, both? Great question. Um, you know, Shot in the Heart by Michael Gilmore was a huge influence to me. I read it pretty early on um, in my own education as a writer. And at the time, I was really only writing fiction. And I thought, and it, it, Michael Gilmore, um, his brother, Gary Gilmore, was the first person executed by the U.S. Um, when the U.S. reinstated the death penalty in the 70s. Uh, Gary Gilmore had committed a couple of murders, and um, he asked to die by firing squad. Hence the book's title, Shot in the Heart. And the book is Michael Gilmore trying to grapple with that. Um, and a bit of a side note of trivia for listeners. Um, Nike's slogan, Just Do It, actually comes from uh, Gary Gilmore's last words. The ad man on the Nike account was sitting at his desk the next morning reading the paper, and um, Gary had been executed the night before, and he saw Just Do It, and uh, he used that as the slogan for Nike, and and so it has been for many, many, many years. Um, but I think that, and I mention that in part because I don't think we realize all the different places that the death penalty permeates our popular consciousness. Um, things like every joke that we have about a last meal, right? Or um, the children's game hangman when you fill in the letters and whatnot. It, it permeates a lot. Um, so Gary Gilmore shot in the heart is one. Uh, he's trying to think about his brother's death, but in the process, he has to evoke mythology and ghosts and the history of Utah um, I'm really interested in stories that in trying to explain something, understand that they must tackle so much that they must try to evoke a lot. 
Um, certainly Janet Malcolm's The Journalist and the Murderer, which is not as much about law, more about the ethics of nonfiction, but is very power- powerful. Um, a Civil Action was enormously influential to me in trying to think about how to make courtroom scenes uh, you know, engaging to read. Um, it does a beautiful job with that, as well as evoking the power of documents. Uh, and there are you know, many others. I think the law is all about stories. And as a result, we have a, a lot of good books and movies about the law. So we're talking about crime this episode because it's one of our challenge categories for this year's 10 to Try annual reading challenge, read a book about crime. But we know that the kind of dark, gritty stories that are covered in the books that we've been talking about so far aren't necessarily for everyone. I have a couple of picks for things that are a little bit lighter or a little bit uh, sort of less devastating to read. My first is super light, super fun. This is Goldie Vance. It is a graphic novel series aimed at sort of teen readers, but I think they have tons of appeal for everyone. They are cute as heck, adorable, candy-colored art. Goldie is a teenager. It's sort of Nancy Drew meets 60s-era sci-fi. She lives in a hotel in Florida with her, where her dad is the manager, and she goes around sort of solving crimes uh, throughout the hotel. So in the first uh, trade paperback, it's a possible spy. There's a connection to the space program. Her really good friend wants to be one of NASA's first female astronauts. There's all kinds of intrigue, but it's just really lighthearted, really cute, um, uh, and a series that I love to keep up with. That's Goldie Vance. One more vote from an adult reader who thought it was precious. <laughs> <laughs> it is the cutest. Also, you can read it on Hoopla. You can, so there's no waiting. Um, my next pick is a little bit more serious, but only a little bit. Uh, this is Bad Blood by John Kerry Rue, who's a journalist. Uh, do you know the story at all? I don't. Okay. It is... It's not a Taylor Swift song. <laughs> alas. Uh, it is Bananas. Um <laughs> Basically, at the end, in the mid to late 2010s, whatever we're calling that decade, um, there was this startup um, and the... Oh, now I know what you're about to talk about. So the thing that the startup was going to do was revolutionize blood testing, which is a huge industry. It's super expensive. And if you've ever had to have your blood tested for something, you know that it's not like a quick prick. It's like a they stick the thing on your arm and the blood is shooting out. (laughs) Yeah, it's a whole situation. So this company had developed this super innovative technology that was going to make blood testing super fast, inexpensive, something that people could do at home. A single drop would test for hundreds of potential diseases. And because it is such a huge industry and there's so much money behind it, the company grew incredibly rapidly. The founder was a young woman who dropped out of Stanford to run the company. Um, She was a huge rising star in the tech world. And uh, in the sort of mid-20-teens, this journalist was hearing some rumblings from former employees that maybe things at this company were not what they seemed. And he started investigating, and it turned out that things were very much not what they seemed. And he started writing a series of articles that basically led to the dissolution of this company. I don't want to give anything away, but the technology didn't exist at all. This 
multi-billion dollar company was built on a technology that she had been faking for years. So Bad Blood is the story of that company, how it became so huge, so highly valued, and then the dissolution. Uh, it's all in court right now. It's just a wild, wild ride. You just cannot believe, you know, huge names, billions of dollars, um, but no murder. So that's Bad Blood. I can't wait to read that. I feel like this is truly the year of the scam. Yes. Like between <laughs> fake German heiresses and like festivals that are falling apart. Yeah, totally. It is the year of the scam and Bad Blood is the leader in that. How about you? What are your picks? So Pretty Little Liars, True Detective, Veronica Mars. What do these TV shows have in common? Um, things that I have binge watched. <laughs> That's a very valid answer. <laughs> um, but for author Alice Bolin, they also typify something she calls the dead girl show. Oh, sure. She pinpoints Twin Peaks as the progenitor of all of these shows. Um, you know, they start off with the discovery of this young woman's body and go from there. And so she wrote an essay exploring why are we so fascinated by this dead girl and what does that have to say about our culture? Mm. Um, so I think that's a great starting point for a book. But then it, the other essays included in this collection continue on to tell a story of her moving to L.A., hanging out in graveyards, reading Joe Didion, listening to Lana Del Rey. This is totally my wheelhouse. <laughs> so if you love like slightly gothy um, feminist critiques of pop culture, which I do, this might be a book for you, too. Sounds awesome. And then the next one I recommend is Alice and Frida Forever. Um, have you heard the podcast No Man's Land from The Wing or maybe Presidents Are People Too? Uh -uh. So the, the author of this book is a co-host of those shows. She takes us back to Memphis in 1892 when uh, Alice and Frida were these young teenagers in love at a time before we really even had a word for lesbian. Um, Alice had planned to pass as a man in order to marry her fiancé, who was 17, uh, but their love letters were discovered and their parents were trying to keep them apart. Uh -oh. They're forbidden from ever speaking again. So Frida was like kind of chill about this and Alice was not. <laughs> and for every unanswered letter that went by, she just grew more and more upset by it. And she stole her dad's razor and then slit her fiance's throat <gasps> in public it was this wild scandal yeah but instead of focusing on sort of the violence of the crime itself people focused on the nature of their relationship so this is the origin story this is how <laughs> prejudice against same-sex coupling sort of started in this country with the idea that if you loved someone of your same gender you would be driven mad with perversion and insanity huh. and violence um, and this eventually became codified in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual for um, the, the book that contains sort of the criteria for diagnosis for psychologists. Mm -hmm. It also worked its way into the Library of uh, Congress subject headings, yeah. which is something I'm interested in. Um, if you don't know, in libraries, we use a series of subject headings. So when you search the catalog, there are all these like classifications that help you find books. And over time, they reflected the biases of the sort of culture that they existed in. Um, interesting fact, the library changed theirs before the American Psychology Association. There you go, librarians. So at one point, I think up until the 70s, homosexuality was classified as sexual perversion. Way to not go, librarians. It, it took, like over a hundred years and countless activists and doctors to finally change this. But I'm so interested in the story of like how it started with two teenagers in love. Yeah. 
Fascinating. Yeah. That sounds like a good one. And then um, I haven't read this book yet, but have you heard about Sherry? Yes. Oh, have you read it? I have not. Me neither. I'm still on hold for it. It seems like everyone's reading Sherry. Um, It's Nico Walker's semi-autobiographical novel. It was written on a typewriter in jail (laughs) and where he's currently still serving time for robbing over 10 banks in four months. Yeah. Wild. Um, Walker's protagonist in the book, like himself, is a veteran who returned to civilian life with post-traumatic stress disorder, a heroin addiction, and quickly dwindling financial resources to keep up with that habit, who turned to bank robbing to support it. Uh, The backstory alone is enough to pique my interest, but Vulture also called it the first great novel of the opioid epidemic, and other critics have compared Walker's voice to Ernest Hemingway. In recent years, the Pentagon has released statistics that suicide rather than combat is the leading killer of U.S. troops, which is a devastating fact. Yeah. And I feel like any book that takes us into the experiences of war, what it's like to be supported or not after you come home is something I want to read to understand why that might be. Yeah, that sounds wonderful to you. So I could wax on and on and on about mysteries. I haven't talked about mysteries today just because I love them so much that I wouldn't know where to start. But if you are a listener who's new to mysteries or you're not sure what you're looking for, if you visit the website, go to kcls.org slash books and look on the left-hand side of the page, you'll see a link to book lists. And we have both a list of recommended mysteries and a list of recommended true crime titles that we think are sort of great introductions to the genre, classics of the genre, or new titles that we're really excited about. So check those out if you're looking for more about crime. Many of the tend to try topics this year I chose because, or we chose because I, there's a big range of the stuff that you can read in them. So you can go from Goldie Vance, which is just like so cute and fun and light. And I have heard from a couple of readers who said, oh, I'm trying to do tend to try with my kids and a book about crime is like not really kid friendly necessarily. There are things though, you know, there's Goldie Vance or there's like heist stories that are fun. Art theft is another not exactly victimless, but sort of fun, you know, it's sort of glamorous. And so you were telling me about The Feather Thief. Can you tell our listeners what that book is about? Yeah. So this was on our best books list last year. It's about a crime where a young man broke into a sort of a wing, haha, of the, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, of the British Natural History Museum and stole like 300 birds carcasses, like, you know, taxidermied birds, um, to sell their feathers to be used in the art of Victorian tie flying. So in the book, the author goes into sort of like the history of these birds and how they became endangered or in some cases extinct. Their feathers were really popular in women's fashion. And then for this Victorian tie flying, and then he investigates this young man and how did he end up, he was a classical musician. He was in the UK to, I think like on a scholarship or to perform or something. How did he end up committing this crime where he he basically like smashed a window got into the museum in the night put a bunch of birds in a suitcase and then escaped and uh they never have really as far as i know um they haven't recovered the birds and uh so it's sort of a fascinating i think heists are fun that would never get through tsa now (laughs) no no i don't know how you transport 300 birds speaking of heists uh there's a young adult series i love called heist society that's about like a young jewel thief that's very fun and has that sort of glamorous victimless crime um, where this young woman has left her family and their life of crime behind, but she's been drawn back in and there's like a fun little romance. And so if you want something lighter, that's another good one. 
does sound fun. Um, there's a new series on sci-fi that just came out. As far as I understand, Deadly Class is about like the next generation descendants of organized crime families, and they send them to this high school um, to train them up to be assassins. <laughs> and so it's one of those things where I think their tagline is like, the knife in your back isn't a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is based on a graphic novel series. Yeah. So there you go. You can read it and then watch it or vice versa. So I wanted to ask you about a genre that's completely unknown to me, but I know that people love it. What is a cozy mystery? Oh, this is a great question. So I will confess up front that I am only a an outside expert on cozy mysteries. Like I know of a lot of cozy mysteries, but I am not personally a cozy mystery reader. A cozy mystery is a very specific subgenre of mysteries where um, they're very like pleasant, essentially. So you have like a nice person solving the mystery, the, you know, usually they're murders, things sort of like murder she wrote, but a book. Mm -hmm. um, so the person who's been murdered probably deserved it anyway. And it's, you know, um, and then they have these like very, specific sub sub genre so there's a whole bunch of cooking ones where mm -hmm. the person who solves the crimes like owns a bakery and then there'll be recipes for the baked goods or there's a bunch of librarian ones or bookshop ones or there's ones where animals play an important role there's a crochet series and several knitting series i feel like i've seen the covers with these like punny titles oh yeah they have the <laughs> best titles so okay. what are some examples? Okay, so some examples. Um, I mentioned there are a lot of, like, cooking and baking ones. Um, a Claire in Present Danger. Oh, no. <laughs> a Batter of Life and Death. Caught Bread-Handed. There's a series set in Leavenworth uh, that's all about, uh, that's set around a brewery. So uh, the books in that one are Death on Tap and The Pint of No Return. <laughs> That totally makes me want to check these out. Go to Leavenworth, sip a pint. Yeah, absolutely. Like take take Death on Tap, cozy up with your beer in Leavenworth, watch mm -hmm. the snowfall. Um, cozies are great. I think people who read them read them for a lot of the same reasons that I often read romance. Like you kind of know what you're getting, and you know sort of what the ending is going to be, but the joy is in getting there, and it's kind of in the way that the story unfolds, and it's kind of comforting. Um, We've talked a little bit on the show about, like, how when there's a lot of other turmoil, like, there's political turmoil or whatever is happening in your life turmoil, there's something nice about a comfort read. And that's definitely what a cozy mystery is. And it sounds to me like the formula is just what I liked about Twin Peaks. You have this wonderful, sweet investigator, a quirky small town, and a mystery unfolding. And maybe there's a touch more like surrealism and blood involved, <laughs> but I get it. That yeah. sounds nice. Yeah, exactly. I think it's very, you know, makes 30% more sense than Twin Peaks or like 90% more sense than Twin Peaks. <laughs> the return. <laughs> But yes, it's it's much more about the cast of characters and the cozy small town and the little business than it is about the murder. So that's a cozy mystery. Sign me up. Yeah. All right. So our next episode is um, read a book about family. I can't wait. We're interviewing some super cool people. Yeah, we're talking to Angela Garvez, author of Like a Mother, which is about pregnancy and childbirth and science and feminism. It's wonderful. And then we also get to talk to Lori Frankel. She's the author of This Is How It Always Is. It's a novel that was on lots of best of the year lists when it came out, including ours. 
So look for that next month. And we also have some other exciting news. We are giving away a copy of A False Report and a prize pack of other books we love, including Pie and Whiskey from last season and The Girls. So to enter the drawing, you just need to go fill out our survey or you can leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. You can find details about the giveaway, a link to the survey, and all of our show notes at kcls.org slash desk set. Until next time, happy reading.